0: Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, we have our guest, Paul Long. He's had many experiences in life. He's a student, husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He worked in Catholic ministry as a youth minister, and he was the director of a children's camp and also worked as a registered nurse and lived his life under the direction of his personal, permanent vow of nonviolence. So he's a member of the secular Franciscan order, and he lives in the Franciscan tradition. Having retired, he now dedicates his time to study, teaching, and walking together and sharing with others walking the road of life. He also has a podcast called Our Walk Together. So welcome, Paul, to the show. How are you?
1: Thanks. I'm really good.
0: Thanks. Awesome. And uh, we always ask about two questions on the show, and the rest are kind of random. How old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? Oh, God. <laughs>
1: I am 71 years old. Uh, I grew up and still live in Buffalo, New York. Um, and what generation? The one I usually say is old.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the call. And I think the first question I want to ask, because I'm kind of obsessed with St. Francis of Azizi, do you want to explain to our audience a little bit about that? Yeah, the,
1: the, the, the um, secular Franciscan order, the order that I belong to, is, is the third order of St. Francis. We are all lay people. But we are members of a, of a regular religious order. So follow the rule of St. Francis. We follow you know, practices that are set down for us in, in our what we call our rule, uh, which pretty much says how we live our lives and what we do as part of our lives.
0: Does any part of it have to do with, like, animals? Because that was one of the—I'm from San Francisco, so I remember just kind of researching the namesake once. I read a book about him that was kind of, like, featuring some of his writings and stuff, and he was really into, like, befriending animals. Is that part of your order?
1: It is. It's a little bit of an exaggeration of what Francis was all about. It's sort of taken away from his, his, major, his, his major message and made it, you know— a friend of mine calls it uh, Saint Francis of the uh, of the Bird Gap, um, and that's really not that's really not what Francis was about. You know, the the, the stories actually come from the fact that that Francis re, uh, protected, believed in, uh, was was conscious of everything that was living. Uh, he uh, he believed that everything that lived, um, every, in fact, everything on, on Earth was a gift from God. He looked at it that way as you know uh, a way of of seeing and knowing knowing God. It's like you know how you know an artist through their through their through their productions uh, through their pictures. Um, Francis uh, knew God through God's creation.
0: Wow, that's cool. Did you slip into this movement accidentally, or was it like quite intentional? Like, how old were you when you first heard about it and became interested?
1: Well, the the Secular Franciscans themselves, I've known about them for a very, very long time. I've just recently uh, become a member of the order because of a strange mis- misperception on my part, where I really kind of believed for a long time it was something you needed to be invited to, but then found out that my perception of it was all wrong and followed through and, and has been part of the order now.
0: Very cool. The other part that really caught my eye, your vow of nonviolence. How strict and how specific can you be about what that really means?
1: What the vow is that that first of all, I I will not do any kind of violence, you know, personally. I also try to talk about, you know, the violence that we see in our everyday lives that many of us don't even realize is violence. Um and I look at the consequences of what happens in our in our violent world. I think so many times we don't even realize, you know, what we're doing in some of our violent reactions to things, you know. Just as a, as a little aside, uh, you know, the very first words of the vow is recognizing the violence in my own heart. And we need to recognize that, that it is a part of who we are. But yet it's not in line with anything that i believe anyways uh of what the the teaching of jesus are
0: yeah and so we live in this strange contemporary world that we share all of us where definitions of words are changing which means you have to be very careful when you articulate concepts and so as the word violence changes more and more to including speech is that already a part of
1: this vow that's part of it you know it's It's everything we do in
0: our lives. So I'm asking this as a fellow father and a fellow husband. I have never experienced yet a a feeling of violence towards my children, but I know growing up that I witnessed the reverse feeling with other people's parents. You know, word choice and the way you talk to children can sometimes be very strict. So have you been tested in that with your children at all, or has it been
1: like a breeze? Um... I you know as far as any kind of physical thing or anything like that, that's never been an issue. You know, I think sometimes it's the words that we use that that can be can be violent, and sometimes the things that we let our kids watch can be violent. One of the things I've been I've been looking at recently, and it's just one of those things that catches your eye after a while, is there, there's there's a, a television show here where they they show cartoons, and most of them are the cartoons that I grew up with back in you know the 50s and early 60s, and it's amazing to me how violent those cartoons are, and many of, many of them still, you know, they're they're funny and everything, but they're extremely violent. Um, and that's, you know, how did we, you know, how how did we get through it? How did I get through that without becoming a violent person myself? Um, and then you you look at at the the games that you know, taking it up another another level, the games that a lot of the uh, the kids are playing, which are the video games and things. Those things are horrible. You know, <laughs> they're they're shooting things. They're shooting things down. They're killing things, and it's it, it's fantasy, yes, but when does fantasy turn
0: into reality? It's, it's really interesting timing that you'd mention all that because not only have I noticed the same thing when I revisit things from my youth, but last night I was watching football on TV and I know football's violent and I know that as I get older it gets harder to justify it. There was a very violent hit last night and they decided to show it from 17 angles and spend three minutes analyzing it. And I was just like, wow, you know, it's one thing to have the sport have violence in it. And and, and in their defense they were trying to like show how violent it was without any commentary as to whether that's good or bad. They, they certainly were not in- Glorifying it, I'll put it that way.
1: Sometimes in, in, other, in other areas, it is, it is glorified. Take, for example, I, I like watching hockey. I like watching lacrosse. Those are two games that I enjoy, But as well as being a huge baseball fan. But hockey in particular, it's always kind of disturbing to me when a fight breaks out on, on the ice and everybody in the arena stands up and cheers. Yeah, uh, What's up with that? <laughs> I mean, when you tell
0: people, too, that it's not against the rules, it just, like, blows their mind. And I believe, I could be wrong, but I think in European hockey, they don't allow it. So so what would be the line for you, then? When would you stop watching hockey? What separates you from someone who's actively campaigning uh, Warner Brothers to stop <laughs> playing those cartoons? I think if
1: the, if, for example, with the hockey... If the game became more and more and more, which it borders on sometimes of the fight, then, you know, then I'd have to really reevaluate. Right now, it's, you know, they happen, but I don't, personally, I don't see that the entire game is that, you know, it's, 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 it's an aberration more than a norm, but when it becomes the norm, uh, I have a little problem with that. And I think that's when I would stop. Yeah. And, and so
0: are you a vegetarian or do you still eat meat?
1: Oh, I still eat meat.
0: So what's the parameters of applying nonviolence towards the slaughtering of animals? And I'm asking this, you know, without any conviction. I'm just curious.
1: I, you know, you, you, you ask the questions I've asked myself many times. Um, yeah, I, it, it, it's a hard thing to, being totally honest about it, it's a hard thing to figure where you actually stand on something like that. Um, yeah, it's horrible you know, the way animals are raised and uh, how they're, um, how they're slaughtered and all that kind of stuff. Yet we, we eat, you know, we eat them. You know, I, I just don't know. I I don't have a real good answer for you as to where that, that line might be.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same thing I ask myself all the time. And I've wavered when I was in my early twenties, I was a very strict vegetarian. Then I went back to eating meat somewhat casually. Then I decided to like try to only eat like ethically farmed animals. You know, I've just been through like, the different stages.
1: Right. And I think it depends on what you do and how it affects you. You said how it affects you, but it also has to do with how you react and what you take away from that. If you're going to watch a hockey game and watch a fight in a hockey game, and I have nothing, you know, I like hockey, and watch a fight in a hockey game and then get out to the parking lot and you're so revved up from that fight that you're going to pick a fight with somebody else, which I have seen happen, that's where there's a line there. You know, something is wrong with not the game itself. But something is wrong with your perception of what is happening there. It's like watching the cartoons. Can I watch a cartoon and say this is fantasy, you know, but it's not going to make me go out and, you know, uh, drop an anvil on somebody's head. You know, uh, and there's a, there's a little bit of a difference in how we take those
0: things. That's a great point. And it also just occurred to me just now that there's a certain violence to telling someone else that they can't do something. And it's a weird line as well.
1: It's true. It's true.
0: That's why I've always felt like my decisions to either eat animals or not eat animals is really like a private decision. I don't feel it's something I need to advertise or tell others about. And I don't want other people telling me that I have to eat meat or can't eat meat.
1: Exactly.
0: I think we should get to the meat and potatoes question, which is what do you think happens when you die?
1: I've thought a lot about it, obviously, and, and t- as time goes by. And I was talking with someone not too very long ago. We were talking about what, what actually happens and, and what, what do we expect, I suppose, is the best way to say it. And both of us kind of came to the conclusion, which is a very strange conclusion to come to, but both of us came to the conclusion of, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been there. I don't know anybody else who's ever been there. I don't know what it is and what is there. Um, you know, is it, is it, you know, you fall asleep and that's it. There's nothing else. Is there something after this? I have a problem saying you just, you you just die and there's nothing else. Um, but is that possible? Sure it is. I'd rather be on my side and be surprised, (laughs) you know, than be on the other side and be surprised. Um, yeah, but I, it, it's really, it's a very, very difficult thing to try to define. Um, you know, is there is, is there a, you know, some kind of place with pearly gates and, and golden streets and all that stuff? I doubt it. You know, I, I, I don't think that that's what exists. I think that some part of us has to exist after our death. Uh, after all, we are, we are created, we are made of energy and energy can't just disappear. It's got to go somewhere, somehow, um, you know. So I, you know, and, and in terms of afterlife and things like that, uh, you know, it's hard for me to say that it would be probably impossible for me to say for myself that there is nothing. Uh, but I look at our tradition and I look at uh, us as human beings. And for as long as as we have been here uh, as human beings, over many, 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 many centuries and and eons, we have always believed that there was something after the life we're living right now. It's gone through various ways of thinking about it uh, over the ages, but man, uh, mankind, um, sorry, that's probably not the politically correct word to say, but mankind (laughs) is... is, has always, always, always believed that there was something. Hence our funeral rituals and all that kind of stuff.
0: I think that that was a great answer, and I'm inclined to agree that it would be better to be surprised than to be disappointed. But I am curious, especially because you have children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, there's that awkward moment where your children not only ask you about what death is, but then when they ask you, are you going to die? And so I'm curious, has that happened to you, and how have you answered that?
1: Um I don't know that it's ever been very specific Uh, as I, as I look at uh, things, I I honestly don't remember my daughter ever asking me that question. It was was more that you understand that it is going to happen. Um, I mean, my, my great granddaughter, who's two years old, that's not a conversation I would have with her. uh, But yet people who are older know that eventually you're going to die. You're not going to be here. You know, we've all experienced that, that, you know, Grandma was here, and now Grandma is not here in the same way. And you experience it, and, you know, you can't, it sounds terrible, but you can't go through life denying that it's going to end.
0: That's good. I like that a lot. And so then what about excluding your own family? There's a lot of people who actually fear death precisely for the answer you gave, which is that because it's uncertain and they don't know what's going to happen, they fear the uncertainty. Uh, what do you say to people like that, if, if you have anything to
1: respond to? All I could say is there there's uncertainty all around with, with the thing. You know, I say things that I think are correct. I say things that I think are are. are Possibly, what's going to happen, but can I know for sure what's going to happen? No, I don't. Uh, you know, and as I said earlier, I don't think anybody does. Anybody who stands and says to me, "Well, when you die, this is what's going to happen," pretty much in my mind, I turn them off right away. Because my question is, how do you know that? And you can know it through through faith and all those kinds of things. And I have a certain faith of what I believe is likely happening as, as death happens, but it doesn't mean that that's what it's necessarily going to be. You, you can't, you can't get away from it. You know, it's going to happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely my favorite thing to tell anyone. It's interesting too, because there's actually like a huge movement especially between wealthy people to fund these life extension projects, you know, and to like upload our consciousness and keep living forever, which I find fascinating because personally, that sounds like a curse living forever. It does not it sounds like a, a day that never ends and you don't get to sleep.
1: I agree. <laughs> That's probably like the last thing I really want to do is live forever. We all we all have that within within ourselves. We have this myth of invincibility and immortality, but I don't think I want to be immortal. I can't even imagine what that would be like.
0: And then what about returning to Catholicism and the traditions that you're invested in? And again, I asked this as an outsider. I was never once, like, I think the first time I was in a church, I was in my 20s for someone's wedding. The perception from the outside that I had was that there's a very, like, punitive structure to that religion that includes a place called hell, and you'll burn there for eternity. And if you do X, Y, or Z wrong, you'll go there. One, am I just preposterously confused? And two, if any of that is true, how do you sort through all that? Because you don't sound like a man who, A, fears a place like hell, or B, even believes in that. There
1: has to be a place of some kind of—I don't even want to say punishment. Some, some place where the decisions you make in this life have have an effect on what goes on. It's it's really really tough to understand for me to even understand how those things kind of come together. I think in terms of, of life and death, and and you you mentioned purgatory and hell and all that stuff. But you know those those are our teachings that have been handed down. Um, you know, what what's the actual definition of that? I mean, I don't think that the church is built or should be built on the vision that Dante had of the, you know, the seven phases and the seven levels of hell and all that kind of stuff. Um, though it's kind of interesting to me when I look at, at that the lowest level has all the clergy in it, but I don't think that's what it is. I think it's just, Do we make our own life? Do we make our own hell on earth? Uh, I think we do. And is there such a thing? And it's a really tough thing because I know it's, in my opinion, is probably a little bit against what the church would say. But it's really hard for me to say that the God that we believe in, that we say we believe in, who is all loving, loving without, um, Without fail, constant love is going to therefore take one of his creation and damn it to, you know, fire and brimstone or damn it to darkness forever. I just I have a hard time with that. Yeah. And I think,
0: again, as an outsider, I did, too. And I I know so many people in your religion who experienced that conflict. What are the ethical boundaries of belonging to a group that you slightly disagree with, but the majority of you agrees with? Like, how do you navigate that?
1: If you're going to belong to any group, one of the great things about Franciscans is we tend, we tend to be very different from each other and, and think very much differently than, than each other in different, different ways. But I think to be a member of any group, to accept what the group says, As never being able to change is belonging to a group that's dead. Because by very nature of of life, we change, we grow, we, we things, things become different as, as, as we, as we go through uh, to use some other language down the path you know and if if you're not growing you're dying kind of simple in my mind yeah that was a great answer and i think the last
0: question i want to ask about non in your opinion is prison violent and how does that affect your philosophy on like the actual concept especially here in America of prison. Hey everybody I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up you get bonus monthly podcasts you get a book I wrote and you also get extra essays and other content so please head over to mikeyop.com that's m-i-k-e-y-o-p-p.com
1: and sign up today. Yeah prisons are violent there's no question about that what's what's the purpose? You know, I often think about that, of here in Buffalo, there's an incident where a kid, you know, was driving a car that he stole, um, ended up getting in an accident with it. Um, Other people that were in the car with him um, ended up dying as a result of the accident. And, you know, people here are, this is an 18-year-old kid, and they're saying, well, this kid should go to jail for the rest of his life. Well, what's what's that going to do? You know, what is that going to do? Nothing. It's 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 a real difficult thing to say if if you're if if you're in that kind of a situation because we all want some kind of vengeance or our, that kind of stuff. But as a Christian, as a Catholic, as a Franciscan, I'm I'm not called to do that. I'm called to forgive, and that's really really tough. But that's that's the forgiveness thing and also the nonviolent way of of, of living. But could I do? what Pope John Paul II did after he went, after he was shot. And, you know, once everything calmed down, he went and met the guy that shot him and forgave him for doing it. And can I, can you do that? Can I do that? I hope I can, but I don't know.
0: That's so beautiful. And I know it's a weird stretch, but um, recently a comedian named Dave Chappelle was attacked on stage and originally they thought the guy had a gun, but it ended up he just had a taser. And uh, he did the same thing. He went and met with him in, like, the hospital and forgave him. And I thought that was that was beautiful. It, it, it hit me. I, was, I was, felt quite sensitive about the whole incident. And uh, I think forgiveness is one of the hardest and most important virtues for each of us to uh, master. Speaking of which, I would love it if you could give our audience kind of, like, a philosophical message to take away from, like, your life. I, I'm less interested in, in the order and all that, and I'm more interested in you and how you grew and how you learned throughout your life. If,
1: there, if there's a philosophy of life that... Then that I could pass on to somebody, it would be learn to love. Those are the words that came to my mind right away when you asked that question. And learn what unconditional love is all about. If you can learn that, life becomes a lot easier. Life becomes, maybe not easier, but life becomes more important and more vital. Philosophy says find someone to walk with you. And I I don't mean in terms of marriage or anything like that, but have a partner. So you know someone who can be honest with you and, Tell you when when you go off bounds, but philosophically, the only words I can think of is a learn to love, and b if your 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 faith takes you to things like the Gospels, go and read the Beatitudes. That's life right there. All eight Beatitudes. That's how you should live.
0: Wow. That's very compelling and very nice of you to say. Paul Long, I really appreciate you, and I appreciate your attitude and that you do host a podcast, and it's called Our Walk Together.
1: The idea of the podcast is for people to share, just like you and I are sharing right
0: now. Awesome. Well, I will encourage all of our audience to check that out. And, of course, um, all the important links will be in the bio. And for everyone else listening at home, um, I just want to, again, say thank you so much. My name is Mike Oppenheim. You've been listening to another episode of Coffin Talk. The number one way to support the show is to head over to Mikeyop.com, M-I-K-E yopp.com and uh, sign up for the free weekly newsletter that also announces the podcast. We love you. We are so thankful for your support and we will see you
1: soon.